Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello again, and thank you, as always, for listening. We're glad you're choosing to listen to us today. This is episode number 27 of The Next Track. Before we introduce our guest, I just want to say that we conduct our interviews using Skype, and sometimes Skype is not the most cooperative piece of technology, so the quality of our Skype connection is a little less than could be desired in this uh, episode, so I thank you for your understanding on that. Today we are pleased to welcome Paul Englishby, who is a composer for film, TV, and theater in the UK. His notable TV work includes a couple of shows you may know. He does the music for the shows Luther and The Musketeers, among many others. And he's composed the music for The Tempest, which is being staged by... Kirk's Neighborhood Community Theater Group, otherwise known as the Royal Shakespeare Company. And we'll talk about all of that. Paul, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Paul, you're a composer for films, for TV, and for stage. And we wanted to get an idea of what it's like to compose soundtrack music and how people listen to soundtrack music. A soundtrack of a movie can be heard by far more people than would hear any sort of album or popular song, yet most people don't really think about it. How did you get into working, composing soundtracks? Well, I studied at Goldsmiths College in London, part of London University, which was a wonderful kind of creative place. There was music department, there was a theatre department, there's fine art, there's a video, um, and it was a really creative kind of melting pot. And I got into, as well as writing concert music and, and the big band and all that sort of thing. I got into writing for the theatre department, and so I'd compose incidental music for plays there, and then do you know crazy kind of installation stuff with the art department. And, um, and it, it really, having been at the Royal Academy of Music, which was, I found very stuffy, and it was a very, very, it was a very classical training, and there was a lot of red tape, and you heard, occasionally heard a piece you wrote. Goldsmiths, it was different. It was kind of if you had an idea, you could just put it on get an idea for a theatre piece you just got the people together and did it so that was where I really really fell in love with kind of writing for drama and also where I got my first kind of taste of sequencing uh, it was an electronic music department so I got into a very early version of Cubase um, and started messing around with that and then fortuitously uh, at a concert where I was, I was having my violin concerto played there was a uh, tv producer in the audience and his name was nick mcclintock and he came up to me and he said you know what the bbc are doing this thing called sound on film which was a series of half hour music films where directors and composers collaborated on an equal footing and so he got me together with a documentary maker called mike grigsby who's now passed away sadly but he very fine documentary maker and we went in for the pitch with the BBC and got the gig so at the age of 20 I, I, I had a um, big orchestra at Abbey Road and I was doing this soundtrack I'd never done a soundtrack to picture before and um, you know you think wow great this is it then no one will be at Abbey Road with a huge orchestra <laughs> but then it was, a, it was a few years till that happened again but um, that that got my TV uh, career off to a start, um, sporadic at first, as as it always is, um, and over the years it's gradually sort of 
snowballed and you and you you, you work with people who then ask you back and uh, you form relationships with directors and producers and and now I, I'm kind of touch wood uh, constantly in work um, across theatre, film, TV, and uh, concert music. So um, I'm in a very, very lucky position. And I think uh, uh, largely thanks to my time at Goldsmiths and just being able to practically put things on. It was a, like a mini version of the real world. You know, you you got collaborators and you and you made relationships and you did things and uh, I was I was very lucky. You're listed at the RSC as associate artist. What exactly does that mean? It means I'm very important. No. <laughs> it's, it's it's something that actors and creative department uh, get offered when they I think when they put in you know a few years of service. I've been working here for about fifteen years. I think so, um, and it's lovely to be back working. You know, I'm working with Greg Doran on the Tempest at the moment. He really got me in at the RSC in, in the early days. I did I did a uh, much ado about nothing with him back in 2001 or something like that. Um, been, we've been regular collaborators. For our listeners, Gregory Doran is the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. I've been living here for about three years near Stratford. So I've heard your music many times on stage. You notably composed music for Richard II, for the two parts of Henry IV, for Henry V, and for Death of a Salesman. What I find really interesting about the RSC is that you have live musicians at every performance, which is not something that's common in theater, with the exception of musical theater. How does that change the way you feel you can work with the music? Well, it's it's a huge bonus, I have to say, to have live musicians and a musical director who's in contact with the stage through the show. It means that you can, almost like you would to picture, you can score scenes, you can score under dialogue. And the, although it's, you know, unlike... On that picture, it, cha- it will change every night slightly. The timings won't be the same, but a good musical director can sculpt the, the score uh, along with the script um, e- each night. So you can put, put you can put specific hits in or points that you want to emphasise in the, the dialogue or or to to match visual image or video image or something. Um, because the MD will have a monitor of what's going on on the screen. He'll have the script written in the score. The Tempest is opening very soon, and this is probably going to get a lot of press because there's some sort of motion capture hologram for the character of Ariel. This is done in conjunction with Andy Serkis's company and with Intel. So this is actually going to be a big technological project. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've just been looking at Ariel. Uh, in his motion, motion capture suit, and it's fabulous. And uh, so simultaneously, he's projected it onto a sort of cloud, and he's that's that's the aerial that people can see in the play. So he's invisible, except when he's an avatar, the spirit. And what they can do, they can transform him. So he has speeches about turning in, about flying and turn and, and about turning into a harpy and. Uh, and so they can actually change his physical shape and, 
and it attributes and set him on fire and all this sort of stuff. Um, and all the time the actor is on the stage as well, so you can see him moving and dancing and moving around the stage, and, and it's, it's really something to see. And of course, that calls for lots of music. So is there more music in this Tempest than in the other plays? I'd say so. There's a lot of music. I mean, they're very wildly the Shakespeare plays in terms of how much they call for music, particularly the sort of history plays. They're quite specific about realistic music, like you know, trumpet calls and alarms and all that sort of stuff. This, this because of the production, it's very filmic and it's very, um, it's very heightened. So it, it can really live with underscore. So I've been having fun with that. We'll talk about film and TV in a second, but let's talk about how do you compose music for theater? With film and TV, I'm guessing you've already seen the film and you have an idea what's going on. But for theater, you don't. You, are, you know the script, you know the, the text, you're working with the director. But how do you actually get the music to match the movements? Do you work very closely during rehearsal or is your composition something you do outside of rehearsal that gets brought in later? Well... You start off with any moments that need to be rehearsed early on. So if there are songs or dances, and then you do that first and you work with the choreographer or the movement person or, and, and the actor who has to sing. Very often we get full company singing stuff. So that's this kind of practically the first thing that needs to be done. And then sort of halfway through the rehearsal process, I'd sit with the director and we'd do like you would with a film, you do a spotting session, go through the script and scene changes, how the scene changes are going to work and all that sort of thing. There's a, there's, a few, there's a sort of balance between artistic and practical reasons for music in, in theatre. Um, so practically, things like scene changes, things like furniture moving, and holes in the narrative, that's your chance to do something like an interlude in the opera or something. You, you can comment on the on the drama and summarize what's gone on in a, in a few seconds while they change a scene or um, so um, that's fun you know I like I like kind of practical reasons to make to, to, to make artistic uh, decisions um, and then you know some somebody like Greg Doran um, is uh, is really pro music uh, in the theater so he, he likes underscore he likes if we feel We'd like to heighten an emotion, and we we will do that. Um, and as you say, you know, having a live band is a real treat. And 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 it's only the National Theatre uh, that also does has live music, as you say, apart from musical theatre. You know, when I do commercial theatre um, like Skylight or The Audience I did last year. That's all recorded, so that you have you kind of have less scope for all that sort of thing. But if you have a good sound designer, you can you almost write in stems if you like. What do you mean by stems? So stems are tr different tracks, which will fit together vertically if you like. So what I'll often do is use them like sound effects. So they'll be called as sound effects in the show. So I may rack up four or five tracks that will work together. And maybe we'll just we'll mute three of them, and then at a certain point in the dialogue, we might bring in different texture. Um, so in that way, you can you can kind of follow the drama. But obviously, it's a, it's, it's not not as supple. You can't really do melodies that land on a certain 
a certain word because it's set in stone. It's a, it's a set length, whereas an actor isn't a set length. But in, with a live band, you can do that. You can write a melody and the EMD will just time it so that it runs along in counterpoint with the text. So it's like, it, may, it means you write differently when you have recorded music as opposed to live, live music. How many minutes of music are generally in one of the Shakespeare plays? I was trying to think. If you go onto iTunes, you can search for Paul Englishby, and you can find a number of CDs that the RSC has released. And I'm looking at the one for Henry IV, Part One and Part Two, and your name is listed in about a dozen tracks. So that's about 20-odd minutes? Yeah, and there's, well, there's more. We didn't put everything on this. No, I understand that, yeah. That's only selections. Yeah, exactly. It varies. I mean, you know, Shakespeare's famously can be very long. <laughs> so some of yes. the shows, <laughs> some of yes. the shows uh, over three hours and probably about half an hour is, is music. But if there are something like The Tempest or Midsummer Night's Dream or uh, where you have lots of song and dance, then it can go up to 35, 40 minutes. Yeah, because it's interesting that, so I go to the theater at least once a month here and you notice the music at times. I'm thinking the first play that I saw here was As You Like It in 2013, and that wasn't your music. That had songs by Laura Marling, and I don't remember who wrote the rest of the music. So the songs actually stood out at times. And I saw King Lear the night of the filming a few weeks ago, and you don't really notice the music in a play like that. It's, it's accents, it's highlights, it's not, it's not in your face. I remember in one of the Henrys, isn't there a bit when all of the actors are singing a sort of medieval polyphonic type song? Henry the Fourth, Part Two, perhaps. Yes, I think it was. Um, was it Gloucester's funeral at the beginning? Uh, and so we we basically had a coffin on stage, and it was like a, it was like a funeral yeah. rite for the whole company to sing, which is great. And I think you know it depends on the composer and the director. And I like to write a lot of music, and Greg likes a lot of music. So in our shows, there tends to be a bit more music than in other shows so um, it depends on on you know the, you hire me if you want to if you want tunes and you want a score kind of um, dramatic scores so let's talk about film and tv you've written the soundtracks for a couple of very well-known tv series such as luther and the musketeers a film uh, an education with harry mulligan which i just loved and a number of other films tv series etc this is obviously a very very different process than writing for theater I'm going to start with my idea of how you do it, and then you can tell me that I'm wrong. You've got a keyboard and a computer, and you've got Logic or Pro Tools or something like that, and you're sitting there and you're trying out ideas, and you're coming up with sort of themes, and then you have to bring them all together. Is that how it works? Yes, I know, and they do vary. Some Sometimes you're on board very early, which is quite a good position to be in um, when I say early I mean they're either still shooting or they're, they're cutting and if you get involved early and, and you do for example I'm about to do um, a TV two-part TV uh, Agatha Christie witness for the prosecution this is the new BBC Agatha Christie series well it's just a it's just a two-part special on, and it's on a Christmas so so I'm witness of the prosecution I'm, I was on board very early because there are there are there's a theatre scene that has music in, so I was hired, and so I did those arrangements, and and they shot to that, and then there's a then there's a hiatus while they finish shooting, and then they now they're editing, and I've been able to feed the edits with ideas, uh, and 
what we call temp score, which very often they'll put together from music from other films, or you you always get, you always get this you always get these cuts of films, and you, and it's full of the Dark Knight Rises, and you go, well, how are we going to do that <laughs> without Hans Zimmer's budget? But uh, um, so if you can get in early and actually temp it with your own material, either either, either existing or specifically written, it's a real advantage because you can get sometimes hamstrung when they present you with a finished article and it's got temp score all the way through it that varies in style, varies in orchestration, and you have to... And, and, so, and you know, some people fall in love with particular cues and, uh, um, and they've cut rhythmically cut to some of the music, you know, so you, that, that can be problematic. So ideally you get on, get on board, join the edit and stamp your, 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 your sort of identity on it. So are, are you saying that sometimes you actually get a finished film that's edited with filler music and you work to that? Yeah, because they were more often than not directors and editors like to put music in before they play play out to the producers, you know, their first cuts and things like that, um, to give a, an idea of where music would be and what kind of music would be. And so that's called a temp score. And so mm -hmm. you, you'll often be presented with a, with a sort of locked cut and it will have temp score all over it. And there will be, and it is kind of deducing whether they absolutely love that music or whether it's just a marker or um, you have to have those discussions and, and find out what the music is what's its function emotionally what it's doing whose point of view is the music portraying all those sorts of things um and then i'm a i'm a thematic composer really i, I like to kind of use themes that then you can develop and, and, and they provide a, a forward momentum in the drama i think and and you can you can you, you can identify with characters and you can talk you can talk about characters that aren't even on the screen by using their music, for example. That was my question. I wondered if for like a TV series, you, you establish a, a, a stack of themes to use throughout the entire series, and then you can draw on those and apply them and rearrange them and, and mix and match them as you need. So my guess is that it might actually even be easier as the series goes along to, to provide the music for it. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd... It's great fun on the Musketeers, which I, I recently finished the third series. My wife, by the way, is a big fan of that show. Oh, great! And it, it was—it's kind of—it's like old school scoring, you know. I had I had a big hero theme, and it's and it, one teases that tune out subtly, and almost every cue involving the Musketeers will have that somewhere in the tech base or just somewhere in the middle, and. You tease it out as the as the story progresses, and then, bang! You can deliver it when when, when they prevail at the end of the of the episode. I mean, it's just great fun doing that sort of thing. It's the it's the old John Barry kind of way of doing things. But of course, every week something like that. Every week there's a different story. So there'll be there'll be some characters who are in every week, and they they have their themes. But then there'll be there'll be new themes to write specifically for that story, and there'll be a new character each week with a, a secret or a plot. But, but there's also the same sort of bumper music at the beginning and end of it, of each episode, so you have to stick with that thematic language as well. The theme tune was actually uh, Murray Gold's, the, the um, title sequence music. 
Um, my theme is a is a kind of is the one that gets delivered at the end of each series, at the end of each episode, and and is 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 the Musketeers hero theme. So, like Luther's got Luther's theme tune is by Massive Attack, and so that's a, like a standalone thing. Well, let's talk about what your job is, and that's providing the, the music cues throughout a TV show or a film. I'm imagining you're sitting in front of a, a computer most of the time. Yeah, I, I'll go through my, my, my process with you, if you like. Um, so I, I work in Cubase and have done since those early times I was telling you about. But, they're, you know, they're all much the same these days. And um, So I will do, gone are the days when you can play uh, the director a on the piano and say, imagine there's some violins here and a clarinet. <laughs> Nowadays you have to make a mock-up which sounds pretty much, doesn't leave anything to the imagination essentially. It, it, so you're not going to scare the horses when you get to the orchestral session. Um, so I do mock-ups in Cubase to the picture. So I have, I have a picture running in, in the Cubase and for, and for each cue I'll decide on the tempo and the the orchestration, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll play in the each instrument um, until you have the, a fully kind of orchestrated version of it. Um, what I like to do, I like to do a whole episode or a whole film before anyone hears anything. Uh, so a big pass at it all, because I think you can get tied down with individual cues. You might start with a single cue and, and end up having a two-week conversation about this single cue. So I like to sort of say, okay, I'm going to spend a week or two on this and do a quite fairly quick pass of it, which will have the main ideas in and um, the thrust of it, basically, and the, and the shape of it, uh, which is important, I think, uh, for people to hear before they judge specific individual cues so um then that goes around the director will have his note his first shot at the notes um and you'll address his notes and questions and rewrites and all that sort of thing and then you're then you're into the world of executive producers and, <laughs> and that can range from one to to a room full I think I have an idea of what this must be like when you get all these chefs trying to stir the sauce around. Absolutely. I'm not going to name a particular project, but there are some that are very difficult in that respect because you can get a series of notes that all can contradict each other, you know. So um, yeah. it's, it's kind of navigating your way through that particular um, storm. Um, and we always get there in the end. Because I think musically, you know, there's all, it's not black and white music. It can be all shades of different colours. So sometimes you can bizarrely cover two people's points of view that seem very opposite, but you might, if you find the right bit of music, they're both happy. I, I don't know if you've seen this film of Miles Davis improvising for the Louis Mao film, La Censeur pour les Chafaux. I guess not many soundtracks have been composed like this. I'll put a link in the show notes in this. Miles Davis is actually watching a projection and he's got his band next to him and he riffs a couple of tunes and then he just plays. He picks up the emotion, he picks up the atmosphere and he just plays it right through. Yeah, I love that score. Um, and I particularly, I mean, I love the simplicity. Very often you've just got one single bass note being repeated and repeated. And just the odd, beautiful Miles Davis like only he could 
phrase. Um, and yeah, it seems to me a brilliant way of doing things for for certain kinds of films. Um, and of course, that was done in Paris and. And it was done in a in a small sort of production, a sort of, uh, you know, uh, not quite improvised, but very close to the whole production in, in such. Whereas now everything, all these films and TV series, they're huge machines. Yes, and there's too, too the people want control over everything. So it, it just, there wouldn't be that, that risk taking. I think it would have to be a very small independent project People where people were doing it for the love of it and the willing to take risks um, but you know I there's a if you had the time you could do you could do say three or four passes of that and then edit yeah. it and that would be it that's you're getting me excited now I'm going to try and pitch this to someone because <laughs> I'm, I'm a jazz I'm a jazz pianist and, and ah you know, okay you, you know you can only create that in a, in a, in a world of freedom kind of describe that sound you know um, but yeah, I love that. I I love that score. And actually, I used I, I did a TV thing called uh, The Great Train Robbery, and um, I watched it. And of course, it was set in the early '60s. And I thought, you know, what what this needs is a kind of Gil Evans, Miles Davis thing. It's just perfect. So I brought in some of that score, uh, the Miles Davis and, and some other Gil Evans stuff, and said, just try some of this on there. It was it was great. It was fabulous, um, and the director was very kind and and let me do that. And he, he kind of managed to shield me from the uh, producers and the execs. And and you know I, I sort of had a rhythm section and three trombones and a bass clarinet, me on piano, and that was a really lovely score to do. So you're wistfully nostalgic there. What about your own music that's not for hire? I see on your website that you've written a fair amount of other music. How much of this is recorded, performed? Do you perform? Do you still perform at all? We, I perform we, for, for the love of it in a, in a jazz setting. We, when I was a, a student, we, I formed a big band. So I have, um, have a load of charts that I've written. And it, everyone's so busy now. You know, back in those days when we were all students, we could play regularly. Um, now, now they're all, all my guys are busy session musicians and, so, so we get together every now and again when I've written some new charts and, and play. Um, but, you know, I write, I write concert music. I'm doing a ballet at the moment for the National Ballet of Canada in Toronto, um, which opens in March. So I'm really excited about that. It's a new version of Pinocchio. Um, so that was, you know, a million miles away from doing a, doing a piece for film. Um, because well, it's kind of the opposite in the sense that the music comes first, and then they and the music is continuous and yeah, yeah. So that is 100 minutes or something. Um, the big orchestra and uh, they're a fantastic company. So I'm I'm really looking forward to going out there in February and, and hearing the orchestra play this. We have to wrap this up, but thanks so much for your time, Paul. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, both of you. Really, really enjoyed our chat. If any of our listeners are near Stratford-upon-Avon, do come and see The Tempest. I, I'm actually quite excited about this whole hologram projection thing. From what I've been able to glean, this is going to be not quite revolutionary, but it will be something that hasn't been done in a large scale in, in the theater. 
And the RSC Films and Broadcasts these plays to cinema, releases them on DVDs and Blu-rays. And if you end up like me becoming a Shakespeare fanatic, it's a great source of material. Thanks a whole lot, Paul. Thanks so much, guys. And this is the part of the show where Kirk and I give you our next track picks. That's the music that we'll be listening to next. Kirk, what have you got? So my next track this week is a lot of tracks. It's 200 CDs worth of tracks. It's about 240 hours of music. Just last week was released a box set called Mozart 225. It's the 225th anniversary of Mozart's birth. It's the complete works of Mozart, as I said, on 200 CDs. I like a lot of Mozart's music. I love his piano sonatas, his string quartets, but there's a lot of Mozart that I've never really explored. And if you're listening to this and you're a classical music fan, you're going to say, oh, another big box set. You're never going to listen to it all. I won't listen to it all. But I will be able to discover a lot of the music that I'm not familiar with. In fact, I really don't know many of Mozart's operas. There's a lot of orchestral music that I've not heard. So I've started listening to this, and basically, inside the big box, there's four smaller boxes, and each has about 50 CDs. So I've pulled out the one that's called chamber music. And what they mean by chamber music is anything that's solo instrumental, so it includes the solo piano works. And I've just been going through that, one disc after another, and listening to it. And sometimes I'll get to a disc that I'll want to listen to two or three times. I think for the next few months, I will be listening to a lot of this. Will I listen to all of it? Probably not. Will I listen to most of it? Yeah. Will I rip a lot of it? That's the big question. I'm sure I'm going to rip the stuff that really stands out, but this is more for me to just have a crash course in Mozart. So my next track is Mozart 225. It's pretty expensive. It's almost $400 in the US. But if you're a Mozart fan or if you want to be a Mozart fan, you can't go wrong. What about you, Doug? Well, earlier in the week of this episode's release, Mose Allison passed away at age 89. Mose Allison was a jazz, blues, piano player, singer, and songwriter. He had a very laid-back, you might even say hipster style, and he was very influential, notably with a lot of British musicians like John Mayall, the Yardbirds, Pete Townsend, the Rolling Stones, well, a lot of musicians in general. He played early on with the likes of Jerry Mulligan and Stan Getz and Zoot Sims and then later released his own albums, at which point he started to gain in popularity. My next track this week is The Prestige Collection, Mose Allison, The Greatest Hits. I've had this album for years and I love listening to it. And it really is great stuff. It's got some standards, some traditional blues, his original compositions like Parchment Farm, Young Man's Blues, which you may know. He's just one of those guys whose music really clicked with a lot of people, including me. The Prestige Collection, Mose Allison, The Greatest Hits is my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.